This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 11. There have been many self-proclaimed greats in the history of our planet. Herod the Great, Alexander the Great, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, and of course, we can't forget Muhammad Ali, even Jeopardy! champions, all considered the greatest of all time. That kind of greatness is measured according to the world standards, but what does God consider great? Today, we'll discover a prophet plus, and a whole class of people greater than him, and we'll learn that, not surprisingly, God's idea of great is quite unique from ours. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 15. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now while in prison, John heard about the words of Christ, and he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one? Or are we to look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. As these disciples of John were going away, Jesus began speaking to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But why did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied unto John, and if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who was to come. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear. So let's break up the scene. We're talking about scenes now in the narrative portion of the Gospel of Matthew. And the best way for us to understand is one small bite at a time. And the way to do this is divide up the scene into its natural divisions here. And what we have when we do this is greatness according to Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about here. And the first sub-scene, if you will, the first part of that is a genuine question. John had a genuine concern, a genuine question prompted by his situation, prompted by his current challenges. Now, Matthew seems to backtrack the storyline again. Keep that in mind. Matthew is not concerned with chronology as Luke is because Luke says in the beginning of his gospel that he'd done his research and he's providing a consecutive account of the events. Not so with Matthew. He's concerned with theme, presenting Jesus as the king of kings, the king of the Jews. And he backtracks the story a little bit. And according to Luke's chronology, the scene that starts here in verse 2 happened before verse 1. The writer sets the stage with John the Baptist in prison. Later, Matthew will explain that the forerunner of Christ lost his freedom because of his ministry, because he confronted Herod about taking his brother's wife. That's in Matthew 14, verse 3. So his faithfulness to Christ landed him in jail. 
nothing unusual there. And we've been talking about this. Last chapter, Jesus says to the disciples, I'm sending you to the midst of wolves. So we should not be surprised to know that difficulties and confusion and, and heartbreak is part of ministry. They're all part of following Christ. But what we have here is during his incarceration, John heard about the works of Jesus, which means he probably didn't follow Christ closely. Presumably, John's disciples followed the ministry of Christ. So Luke describes two of these reported works of Christ to John in consecutive order. For example, Luke 7, verses 1 through 10, we have the healing of the centurion's servant. And also in Luke 7, verses 11 through 17, the resurrection of the son of a widow. Again, you can compare the two accounts. Luke provides the consecutive order of these things. Now, after hearing about these particular miracles, these particular works of Christ, John the Baptist expressed doubt concerning Jesus' identity. John the Baptist, the mighty prophet, the greatest man who ever lived according to Jesus Christ up until that point, had questions about the identity of Christ. And this is evident by the way he worded the question, or he asked his disciples to word the question, the expected one. Are you the expected one or the coming one? This is a messianic title. In other words, it's saying, are you really the Messiah or are we supposed to wait for someone else? This is what John is asking them. In fact, The content of the message of John in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew gives us a clue regarding the genuineness of his concern. Here it is. In Matthew 3, verses 10 to 12, John says this. (laughs) Imagine this guy yelling and wagging his finger at the Pharisees, saying this. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. By the way, baptism of fire is a reference to judgment. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear the threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So remember, this is judgment language. And John is wagging his finger preaching, you need to repent. Why? Because judgment is imminent. The axe is already laid at the root of the tree. But the problem for John is Jesus didn't start doing that. Jesus didn't start swinging the sickle or chopping the proverbial heads of bad trees or people, even the people responsible for John's incarceration. So obviously John says, wait a minute, I've been preaching that he's going to judge, but he's not judging yet. He's healing people. He is demonstrating compassion. Something must be wrong. Perhaps I got this wrong. Evidently, church, John miscalculated the timing of Christ's judgment which will happen in the second coming, not in the first coming. Jesus is very clear about that. He didn't come in the the first time to judge people, but to offer salvation, to warn people about the second coming, that the time when he will judge. In the meantime, in the first coming, Jesus' ministry was very obvious. Very first verse of this chapter, he came to teach and preach. Judgment is later on. The compassion of Christ threw John off a little bit. Perhaps he was too focused on judgment, that he missed divine grace and mercy. So naturally he thought, someone else is going to do all the judging. Did he delegate the judging ministry to another? And then why am I in prison anyway? I'm doing the Lord's work. Am I supposed to prepare the way for the Messiah or what? If I'm supposed to prepare the way for the Messiah, what am I doing incarcerated? Did I misunderstand my call? Even though he heard the voice of God from heaven after baptizing Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So Matthew anticipates the concerns of his original readers. Again, because just like John, they would have had the exact same question. 
after they learned that Jesus' presence on the earth would not bring peace, but a sword. And we're reading this, again, in consecutive order. We're reading chapter 10. We're thinking, wait a minute. Jesus says it's not coming to bring peace, but sword, but division, breakup of family relationships. Is this really the one? We have the same first reaction when we face difficulties in our Christian walk. We reason, wait a minute, if I'm a follower of Christ, why am I experiencing so many problems? Is he really the one? Am I doing the right thing? Am I following the right Jesus? Now, part of that is because of bad preaching. They corrupt the message to give you the impression that the Christian life is always smooth sailing. Now, let me give you the example of Paul. His perspective when he was in prison. By the way, have you ever heard the term prison epistles? God used that man while he was incarcerated to write scripture. This is what he says, Philippians 1, verses 18 through 20. I will rejoice. And this is a man who is in prison, tied to a Roman guard 24-7, not able to do what he is called to do, what he loves to do, which is shepherding people. His apostolic ministry says, I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, he may mean deliverance out of prison or most likely deliverance from this world because his death is imminent. Meaning, this will turn out for me being in heaven soon. Now, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that's why. And he keeps going. That I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That's Philippians 1, verse 18 through 20. And that is the perspective, church, that we need to have when we have genuine concerns, genuine questions about Jesus Christ, his identity, what he's doing. We don't need to know exactly what he's doing. We need to trust him. We need to trust that he is sovereign. He doesn't have to give any explanations to us concerning what he's about to do or he's doing. Eventually, we'll know what we may or may not know. He has given us plenty of information concerning his identity, his ministry, his love, his mercy, his compassion, his future journey. And that is not unclear for us, church. Our job is to proclaim Christ, salvation in no other name, and then let the chips fall where they may. This will generate consequences. This will put us in a place of conflict because we are storming the gates of hell when we preach Christ. So that was the genuine question. But let's talk about the second part of this scene here, verses 4 through 6. A timely answer. See, Jesus is answering the concern of his second cousin. John was a man of his time. Now, along with every Jew of the first century, he expected Jesus to start chopping heads off with the acts of judgment and usher in the kingdom. That's what he expected, along with every Jew. Remember, the disciples had that same philosophy, that same misunderstanding of God's program, even after the resurrection. How do we know that? Because they asked him, Jesus, is it at this time you are establishing the kingdom? Now, There has been a death, burial, and resurrection. You are now here in a resurrected body. Is this it? Are you going to usher in the kingdom now? This is in the beginning of the book of Acts. And what does Jesus say? It's not for you to know the times. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses. So John was a man of his time. He expected Jesus Christ to start judging, to start chopping off heads and ushering the kingdom, which would crush Rome. The idea of healing people Casting out demons followed by crucifixion and resurrection never occurred to John. According to Luke, Jesus performed miracles in front of John's disciples in order to demonstrate his messianic credentials to the disciples so the disciples would go back and report to John. That's why he says, go back to John and report what you see. 
But we don't know that unless we read the parallel story in Luke, which says this, Luke 7, verses 20 to 22. When the men came to him, referring to John's disciples, when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? And at that very time, He cured many people with diseases and afflictions of evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So what Jesus did is, let me perform a few miracles here for you to see and so that you can go back and report to John that this is the messianic time. Why? Because Jesus is quoting to them Isaiah 35 verses 5 through 6 and also Isaiah 61 verse 1. In other words, Jesus is saying, go back to John and tell him to read his Bible and compare what's going on with Scripture. In other words, look at current events with the light of Scripture, not the other way around. We, we don't interpret Scripture in light of current events, but the other way around. We look at Scripture and we understand God's program, redemptive program. That is what Jesus is telling the disciples of John to do. This is what's going on. What's going on is we're ushering in the Messianic age. Why? Because the Messiah is here. Therefore, It's not just about judgment. That's coming later. But for now, you need to know that the the blind will see, the lame will walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf fear, the dead are raised up, and the gospel is being preached. Something that perhaps wasn't clear to John. And that's how Jesus confirms that he is the Messiah and that John needed to wait for no one else. In other words, the implied answer is, you don't need to wait for anyone else. You just need to take me for who I am. In fact, blessed are you if you take me for who I am. And he tells John to read his Bible in church. Can you think of a better place to go when you have a moment of crisis, when your faith wavers? Where else would you go? Confused about Jesus' identity or ministry or timeline because of opposition or conflict? Read your Bible. Get your answers from the Word of God. You'll learn that Jesus is not less divine because he allows you to go through adversity. Quite the opposite. He's given you an opportunity to identify with him, a man of sorrows the suffering servant. Now remember what he said in the previous chapter. True disciples of Christ must be willing to die a humiliating death if necessary. That's what the picture of the cross is when he says, if you're not willing to pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. What he means by that, again, church, a sword is a quick death. A a cross is not a quick death. It's a humiliating, agonizing, painful death. Crucifixion victims were often naked, exposed, And that's what he says, we must be willing to endure humiliation for him if necessary. And when we are confronted with this reality of the Christian life, we may be tempted to say, wait a minute, what did I get myself into by following Christ? If that's the case, I'm not sure I want to follow Christ in church. I have seen this over and over again. People walk away from the faith, either because they didn't have faith to begin with or because they say, well, I need to reconsider this. I need to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. But it's usually in a moment of crisis that that happens, whether it's a global crisis or a personal crisis. But Jesus Christ comforts us by saying, listen, the greatest man who ever lived apart from Jesus Christ up until that point experiences something just like you. We're human, just like John. That's the great thing about the heroes of the faith. They're not superheroes. They're humans. They're just just like you and me. They go through the same things, and they're people of their time. So 
Here's what else you learn about the character of Christ concerning his mercy and grace. When you read, when you go to the Bible, instead of focusing too much on judgment, if that's the case, like John perhaps was experiencing, focusing too much on the judgment ministry of Christ, that he missed the grace and the mercy and the compassion of Christ and the long-suffering of Christ and the kindness of Christ. When we read the Bible, we will get the full picture. We have the balanced picture. And this is what we see. Yes, he is the judge. That's all the book of Revelation is all about, but... Here's what else you'll learn. The very book of Matthew, he forgave the tax collector. He forgave the woman caught in adultery. By the way, when everybody called for her public humiliation, everybody else called for her public execution and humiliation, and let's expose her. He forgave her. What did he tell her? Go and sin no more. John 8, verse 11. He also prayed for the forgiveness of his own persecutors. That is in Luke 23, verse 34. So church... If you struggle with the idea that Jesus Christ forgives sinners, let me quote from him, Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, and who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquities, transgressions, and sin. That's the character of God. He is a forgiving God. Yes, judgment will come at the right time, specifically for people who reject Jesus Christ, but he's not willing that any should perish. And he is gracious and merciful, just like we read here this morning. His mercy is the reason we're not consumed every day. He is not quick to judge. He allows people plenty of time to repent. You've experienced it. He is ready to forgive you of your sins, post-conversion sins, hidden sins, hidden in the chambers of your heart. Whether you hate someone, that's considered murder according to the divine standard. Or if you have lust in your heart, that's considered adultery according to the divine standard. He is ready to forgive you. He doesn't need to expose you publicly. He's ready to forgive you. Imagine if he were quick to judge us. We wouldn't be here. Now, look at verse 6. Jesus concludes his interaction with the disciples of John by pronouncing a blessing, a beatitude, if you will, on people who take him from whom he is. Literally, this is what he's saying. Happy are those who do not stumble because of me. Because the word blessed here is the same one he used in the beatitudes. Truly happy. Makarios in Greek, a word that means truly happy according to the divine standard. You see, so we're learning about happiness according to the divine standard and greatness according to the divine standard. The complete opposite of the world. And he's saying here, a happy person, besides the Beatitudes, a happy person is someone who does not stumble because of who I am. A person who takes me for who I am. Let me tell you something, church. Some of the unhappiest and bitter people I have ever met are those who claim to be Christian but cannot stand the mercy of Jesus Christ. They think Jesus should judge everybody else, obviously, except them when they are caught in sin. These are the most unhappy people I've ever met. It says here, blessed are you if you understand my identity, my personality, my ministry, who I am, for who I am. And you don't stumble over this. You don't stumble over my words, my call for a high cost of discipleship here. And blessed are you if you understand my redemptive program for humanity, which includes, in the case of John here, mercy, grace, healing, compassion, forgiveness, and judgment at a later time. But let's look at the third part of the scene here, and that will be the last one, verses 7 through 15. We'll, we'll wrap this thing up, talking about the forerunner of Christ and Jesus' true definition of greatness. So greatness according to God's definition, not according to the world. Matthew demonstrates that even though John got confused about the identity of Christ, Jesus did not get confused with the identity of John. Is that clear? 
See, he doesn't rebuke John for, wait a minute, you, you don't believe who I am? You must be judged. That's not what he's doing. What is he doing? He affirms his follower, in this case, his forerunner, by acknowledging people's interest, first of all, by acknowledging people's interest in the baptizer. And the reason for their curiosity about John is, is, is easy to understand, church. At that point, there hadn't been a prophet for 400 years in the line of Elijah. So we call those the, the years of silence. Between the last book of the Old Testament and the first page of the book of Matthew in your Bible, there's only one page or two, but there's actually 400 years of silence, which means no prophetic utterance from God, no prophet really from God, except when John the Baptist comes to the scene. So when they see that, they're naturally curious. They say, wait a minute, another prophet? We haven't seen one of those in a long time. So naturally, they were curious about John. And Jesus affirms John and defines greatness to them. Part of his strategy is to ask the same rhetorical question three times. Did you catch that? Verses 7, verses 8, and verse 9. Same exact question three times. The first two include an interesting imagery. A reed tossed by the wind. What do you think that means? It illustrates someone who wavers back and forth with the truth, someone who, who is caught with the wind of doctrine, someone who doesn't know what he's talking about as far as prophetic utterance, as far as talking about Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying, you didn't go to the desert to see a reed tossed by the wind, someone who doesn't know what he's talking about here. And the second illustration that Jesus uses here, you didn't go to the desert to see a man dressed in royal robes because if you wanted to do that, you would have gone to a palace. So let me clarify to you the identity of this man who was questioning genuinely the identity of Christ. So Jesus confirms John's special calling in God's redemptive program. And he dispels any rumors by doing that. In case they were wondering if, wait a minute, is, is, is he asking this because he's a weak prophet? And Jesus says, that's not the case. In fact, he promotes John to more than a prophet. He's, he's not a weak prophet. That's not the reason he's asking this. That's not the reason he has questions. He is the real deal. In fact, he quotes Malachi 3, verse 1. He says, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. He is not only a prophet, he is more than a prophet. Now, what does he mean by that? What in the world? Because, see, John didn't perform any miracles. But look at verse 9. His ministry was unique because every prophet before him prophesied about the Messiah. Every one of them spoke about the coming Messiah but did not interact with Christ. John is more than a prophet because he did interact with Christ. It's a privileged position in God's redemptive program. He affirms John. He understands his forerunner's humanness and still promotes him to more than a prophet. Likewise, church, he understands your questions. He understands your concerns. He understands your doubts, your struggles, even before you articulate them. Or even if you don't articulate them. He already knows you, just like he knew John. You may be confused about the identity and ministry of Christ. He's not confused about you. He knows exactly. He knows you more than you know yourself. He knows the hidden chambers of your heart. Now, stress and anxiety may blur your understanding about the ministry and identity of Christ, but he will never get confused about your identity. And he wants you to know him and be blessed. Why? Let's look at verse 6 again. Blessed are those who do not stumble over me. So he wants you to be blessed. He wants you to know him for who he is and be blessed. Look at verse 11. He did not rebuke John. Instead, he made a remarkable assessment of his forerunner, which would have shocked his listeners. 
Why? Because in the Jewish thought of the time, no one was greater than the patriarchs. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Now, it's mind-boggling because, see, John did not lead anyone out of Egypt. He didn't conquer the Philistines. He never performed any miracles. But he had the honor of leading people to Christ. And I can't think of anything more noble than that, church. Can you? Even more remarkably, according to Jesus, members of the kingdom of heaven are greater than John. Wow. And here's why. John saw Jesus. We did not see Jesus. We believe without seeing. And Jesus says, blessed are you who did not see and yet believed. Furthermore, church, we get to tell people about the complete redemptive work of Christ. John did not see the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. His ministry was before that. The reason why the least of us in the kingdom of heaven are greater than John is because we have the full picture. We get to tell people about the death, burial, resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, and the return of Christ. We have the full picture. We have no reason to get confused. We're in a better position than John. The baptizer was the forerunner. We are followers. And that is why we're greater than him, according to the divine standard. Not because of anything you've accomplished. Not because of your career, the size of your bank account. It has nothing to do with that. The size of your ministry even. But just by virtue of being in the kingdom, you are already considered greatly privileged. Why do we say this? Because again, I point you back to the Beatitudes. You see, the world may consider you insignificant. In fact, the world does consider us insignificant and annoyance, actually. But not in God's eyes. We are great because of our position in Christ. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to join us in spreading the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.